so my name is Julie Willemsen. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. And this seminar is going to be about the global war on journalism. <clears throat> now, I, I reflected a bit upon um, uh, this, this phrase, the, the global uh, war on journalism, and just thought that if we look back, the emergence and what some would call the inflation of the terrorist threat <coughs> in my region, which I study, the, the post-Soviet space, from, the from 1999, and I think in the West, particularly from 2001, has uh, become a pretext for less openness uh, across the board. And in many ways, it's not so surprising because high attention to security issues always potentially cuts into civil liberties or freedom in a kind of nexus, as I study it at least, between security and civil lib liberties. You always have, in politics, you always have to find, strike a balance between those, and when security becomes very important, it comes at the cost of civil liberties or freedom. And uh, in particular, of course, uh, <coughs> the war on terror has taken its toll on uh, uh, freedom of speech and the media and, and journalism. And not only has the media become, I think, uh, instruments of war in a very striking way, and some have studied it like Judith Butler. She even calls the media an instrument of war in the sense that mo modern media often tends to legitimize and pave the way for anti-terrorist campaigns, or anti-terrorist wars, instead of treating them as a critical subject, as something they should relate critically to. So that's one part of the problem. Uh, and then the second part, which I think is more in focus today, is of course that the reference to our national security or to the terrorist th threat, uh, journalists are being denied access, they are sometimes jailed, they are persecuted and sometimes killed. And the fact that this has become a, a practice, a kind of a legitimized practice somehow, has made it spread. And in my re region, you can see the most uh, um, strange cases where the pretext is, oh, this, you know, this is per journalist is a threat to, to national security or he's a terrorist threat or affiliated with terrorists and something like that. Um, <clears throat> and that's the pretext then for, for persecution. So there's a fascinating way how this has spread as, as a legitimate practice and of course it has become a particularly expedient tool in the hand of authoritarian uh, leaders. So this is the theme of our seminar today. Uh, and now I'm very pleased to give the word to Mary Ellen Miller who is the Australian ambassador to Denmark, Iceland and Norway uh, because you are going to uh, introduce our guest who is Peter Greste. Thank you. Good morning, everybody, and good morning to those watching online and uh, wherever you are. Uh, as Julie said, I'm, I'm the Australian ambassador to Norway, also Denmark and Iceland, and I'm actually based in Copenhagen. But I come to Oslo very frequently, to Norway very frequently, um, partly because I love Norway very much. It's gorgeous. But a lot to do with there's a, a, a lot of interesting things happening here and a lot of work happening between the Australian and the Norwegian governments, which uh, is very, very good to, um, to promote. Um, I'm really delighted to have the honour to introduce to you today uh, Professor Peter Grester. I'm really pleased that he's been able to come to Norway 
uh, when I heard that he was coming to the region, I thought that this was a natural fit to have a discussion about uh, the kinds of issues that, that Peter talks about. Uh, for those of you that don't know much about him, he's an Australian-born journalist, uh, author, media freedom activist and academic. Peter is the founding member of the advocacy group The Alliance for Journalistic Freedom, and he also holds the UNESCO Chair in Journalism and Communication at the University of Queensland. Peter's here today to talk about the global war on, on journalism, as, as has already been said, and why we need to fight back. Um, Peter has spent 25 years as a foreign correspondent, uh, starting with as a freelance reporter, and then joining the BBC in 1995, where he was correspondent to Latin America, the Middle East and Africa. Uh, in 2011, he joined Al Jazeera, where he became the East Africa correspondent. In 2014, Peter was arrested with two of his colleagues in Egypt and charged with terrorism. Australian media and the Australian public took a very keen interest in, in Peter's case and the arrest and his detention was an extremely complex and challenging consular case for the Australian government. Um, Peter's release from prison and departure from Egypt after more than 400 days imprisonment was the culmination of a very long campaign and, and advocacy by Peter's family and by the Australian government at the highest levels. Peter's case sparked international outrage and one of the world's biggest social media campaigns. Uh, Peter argues that his case was just an extreme example of a much wider global assault on media freedom. He's been awarded a number of uh, awards since his detention, including the International Association of Press Clubs Freedom of Speech Award, the Australian Human Rights Commission Medal, and the Australian Press Council's 2018 Press Freedom Award, just to name a few. Peter has also co-authored co uh, uh, an account with his family on, of their struggle to have his, uh, have his release secured, called Freeing Peter, and he's written his own book on journalism and the war on terror called The First Casualty, published in 2017. Uh, Peter remains a very avid advocate for media freedom and journalistic safety, so um, advocacy that's clearly still greatly needed today. So I'm very pleased to welcome you to, to uh, Norway on behalf of the Australian Government and the Norwegians. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and it, uh, it's a great honour to be speaking. Thank you for, for those wonderful words of introduction. It's a fantastic honour to be speaking in the country that uh, the CPJ and Reporters Sans Frontier both describe as the world's best when it comes to press freedom. Um, clearly, the Norwegians take issues around press freedom of, spe freedom of speech very seriously indeed, um, even to the point of inviting someone who is convicted of collaborating with ex Islamic terrorism to lecture you on the subject of <laughs> freedom of speech. Um, I, I don't need to lecture uh, Norwegians about press freedom. Um, you can be justifiably proud of your record. Um, Australia isn't doing too badly. We sit at number 21 on the World Press Freedom Index, although slightly disconcerting that we're actually behind Uruguay and Suriname of all places. Uh, we're also a few places, <laughs> a few places behind New Zealand, which is a little bit like, I suppose, Sweden beating Norway when, uh, in the in ice hockey. Um, but we must always remember that rankings are just that. It's a, it's a relative scale. It doesn't show those raw numbers, those raw figures, those raw positions don't tell us anything about the wider trends. And the latest reports from the three big organisations that look at these things, Reporters Sans Frontier, the Committee to Protect Journalists and Freedom House, 
all consistently tell us the same thing, that press freedom has been on a steady downward trajectory since the beginning of the last decade, since the beginning of the, of the or since the middle of the 2000s, sorry. That's a particularly disturbing statistic. Reporter Sam Frontier's annual report is, is subtitled A Cycle of Fear. It's a phrase that is pretty self-explanatory. It goes on to describe what it says is an unprecedented level of fear and danger for journalists. Now, according to Freedom House, only 24% of 180 countries that are studied in the report are classified as good or fairly good. That's down from the previous year. And even the United States, which describes itself as that bastion of freedom of speech and freedom of press, the home of the wonderful First Amendment, uh, has just slipped into the orange zone. It's number 40. Overall, 13% of the world lives in what Freedom House describes as having a free press. 13%. That's a tiny fraction of the world's population. 45% of the world is in those zones which are considered to be not free. Currently, we're seeing journalists murdered at a rate of about two per week. Now, that is a very, very conservative estimate. Reporters Sun Frontier and the CPJ both are very, very careful about who they describe as a journalist. They don't include people like bloggers or citizen journalists. They don't include those cases where journalists have, where the motive is unclear, where journalists have been murdered by accident, where we can't pin um, a, a particular motive to a particular murder. So the numbers are almost certainly far higher than those figures. If we have a look at the numbers of journalists in prison, they're also at around a record high. 250, around 250, 260. The number obviously keeps changing because sometimes people are arrested on a daily basis and released, but they are still currently around the record highs. Now what's particularly interesting is that when you look at those numbers, what you see is what the, what the CPJ has come to describe as the, 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 def, the way the CPJ has defined the charges. The CPJ says that almost three quarters of all of those journalists who are in prison are imprisoned on what they would describe as anti-state charges. In other words, charges like sedition, like terrorism, like treason, not charges for things like defamation or other routine crimes that we might consider to be crimes of journalism. They're crimes against the state, which tells you, I think, something fundamental about the way in which the states have come to regard journalism. As we heard in the introduction, journalism is so often being seen as a threat to the state, not as a supporter, not as a necessary counterpoint to the state, not as a part, a fundamental part of the way that a social system should work. They're seen as a threat to the state. Curiously enough, that's exactly what we were charged with in, in Egypt. We were charged with being members of a terrorist organisation, aiding and abetting a terrorist organisation, financing a terrorist organisation and broadcasting false news with intent to undermine national security. And when you think about it, those charges are about as serious as you could possibly get, 
short of actually physically pulling the trigger on a Kalashnikov in a crowded room or pulling a pin on a grenade and rolling it into the middle of a crowded room. I think, we'll come back to that story in a moment, but I think what is particularly interesting is, is my own experience in Afghanistan. Afghanistan for me is, is really illustrative of, of what's going on. I was a correspondent in Kabul in the 1990s, in the mid-1990s. And in 1995, when I first arrived in Kabul, we would do what responsible journalists should do. We would cross the front lines and speak to all of the parties to the dispute. We were observers to the conflict. We weren't participants in it. Obviously, it was a dangerous place to operate, as anywhere is when you're working in a place where bits of metal are flying around at supersonic speeds. But the point is that all of the parties understood that we had a role to play as observers. They didn't always like us, but they accepted us as legitimate. I remember there was a new group that appeared on the front lines um, one day. They displaced the old opposition forces and we had to go across to meet them. So we strapped on our body armour, we put a big BBC flag on, on the vehicle, clenched our bottoms <laughs> and drove across the front lines to speak to the other group that, was, that had just arrived. And I remember as we approached the group, this turbaned head stuck its, um, poked up of the, the, the sandbagged barriers and this guy comes out, he sees the sign, he says, ah, BBC, welcome to Taliban. Now, the Taliban accepted us as, in the same way that the other players, the other parties in, in that conflict accepted us, as legitimate observers. They didn't necessarily like our politics or our theology. They didn't necessarily understand it, but they accepted us. At the same time, governments were encouraging us to speak to the Taliban because they too needed to understand what it was that drove this organisation. What was the theology behind it? What was the ideology that underpinned the Taliban? What was it that they were hoping to achieve? And again, whether you, whether you liked it or not, we needed to understand that. And journalists were at the front line of that understanding. Now let's go forward until 2001, November 2001. When I went back to Afghanistan and things had changed. You might recall that after 9-11, George W. Bush stood before a special joint session of parliament not parliament, rather, a joint session of Congress. And he said, in this war on terror, you are either with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, at the time, that statement seemed to make a lot of sense. It was very difficult to be ambivalent about the 9-11 attacks. But what George W. Bush did in making that statement was created a binary world, a world in which you are either with the enemy or you are with the good guys. There was no middle ground. And that made it impossible for journalists to do their jobs as we were doing in the, in the 90s and cross the front lines to speak to all parties to the conflict. In November, as the Americans, as the, not just the Americans, but the coalition forces were advancing on Kabul, Al Jazeera journalists that were based in Kabul itself got the one interview that I'd wager pretty much every journalist in the world would have wanted at that point and that was with Osama bin Laden. Now, at the time the United States condemned 
Al Jazeera for broadcasting terrorist ideology. There was also a bomb, an American bomb, that fell squarely on the Al Jazeera Bureau in Kabul at that time. Now, the Americans insisted it was a mistake, but they also later went on to acknowledge that they had targeted what they saw was a facility where, that, that had known links to terrorists. Of course, it wasn't just the Americans that were attacking journalists. Some very good friends of mine um, were traveling on a convoy shortly after Kabul fell from Jalalabad in eastern Afghanistan up to Kabul. The convoy included an extraordinary Australian cameraman, Harry Burton, and a wonderful Italian journalist who I was very close to, Marie Grazia Cattulli. The Taliban intercepted their convoy. They pulled all of the journalists out and they let everyone else go. They took the journalists off into the hillside and they emptied the, the uh, magazines of their Kalashnikovs into them. The, the Taliban soldiers that were responsible were later caught and in the trial they were asked what had happened, why they'd, they'd done this. And they said that they had murdered the journalists explicitly on the orders of the Taliban command to go after journalists. So what we saw in Afghanistan was a radical and sudden shift where journalists were no longer being no longer seen as simply observers to the conflict we were seen as participants to my mind this is absolutely critical in the past we've seen wars over tangible things as I said earlier land water stuff that you could put your finger on but what 9-11 did what the war on terror did was create a war over ideas and in that war of ideas the place where ideas are transmitted becomes by definition a part of the battlefield. And journalists, therefore, whether we like it or not, are seen as participants in this conflict. And so by all of the sides, all of a sudden, we are seen as a threat, whether it's threat to the kinds of ideologies that the Taliban and the Islamic extremists would have us transmit, or a threat to the integrity of the state. Now let's go back to Egypt in 2013. When I was working as a correspondent, I was filling in the Bureau over the Christmas New Year period. Um, we didn't have too many, too much, uh, well, I, let me backtrack a little bit. I had only been in Egypt for a couple of weeks. I'm not an Egypt specialist. I've been recalled. I've been called up from uh, my base in, in Nairobi. I've been asked to cover the Bureau while we were short-staffed. And because I didn't know the story well, because I didn't know where the edges of the story were, I wasn't probing the edges. I was doing what I considered to be legitimate but very basic journalism, Journalism 101. The government would make some announcements, some changes to the constitution that was in place. We would then pick up the telephone and call the opposition to try and to get some kind of reaction. And we'd speak to an analyst to make sense of it all. Vanilla journalism. But remember, in December of, in December of 2013, what we had was an interim government that had been installed by the military, which had toppled the Muslim Brotherhood government six months earlier. Now, the Brotherhood had formed the first democratically elected government in Egypt's history. In the classic model of democracy, the opposition is the party that was last in power. 
And so, in our view, we had not just a right, but a responsibility to speak to indisputably one of the most potent and significant political forces in the country, and that was the Muslim Brotherhood. And so we did. Now, I wasn't expecting any pushback because, as far as I was concerned, we had done nothing wrong. We weren't doing anything particularly controversial. And so on the night of December 28th of 2013, when I got a knock on the hotel door, I wasn't expecting anything. I cracked the door open and the room was flooded with security agents. They pushed me to the back of the room, ransacked the place, gathered up all of my things, all of my belongings, my notebooks, my laptop, my cameras and stuff, and marched me down to the police cells where I was placed under arrest. And that's when I discovered what the charges were, those very serious terrorism charges that I told you about. Now, for me, the problem was trying to reconcile these two polar opposite positions. The reality of what we had been doing, the very ordinary vanilla journalism that we had been working on, and the incredibly serious terrorism charges that we were being faced with. How could anybody have taken the evidence of what we had been doing and come to the conclusion that somehow we had been involved in acts of terrorism or we'd been collaborating with terrorists? Now, I really struggled with this for a long time. Um, I felt that we had two options. Either we should fight it on the evidence and say, look, there's no, it's quite clear we weren't involved with anything, we just need to let the judicial process take its course. Clearly there's been a mistake, somebody misread the arrest warrant, was looking for a Mr. Peter Greystone. They knocked on the wrong door, got the wrong bloke. Perhaps someone had mistranslated some of our work and all we needed to do was to explain what the journalism was, what the scripts really were, and it would all be fine. We'd be released. But then I spoke to a couple of neighbours of mine in prison, including a wonderful character called Lala Abdel Fattah, who is one of the main revolutionaries who helped inspire the January 28th revolution, the one that originally toppled Hosni Mubarak. And Allah said, you need to stop taking, thinking about this personally. You need to think about the politics behind it. And I realized then that, in fact, this didn't, this didn't have anything to do with what we had actually done. This wasn't what about what, what we had done. This was about what we had come to represent. That the Egyptian government came after us because we represented press freedom. They were trying to send a very clear message to all journalists operating in Egypt at the time that you will not speak to the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, as I said, I'm not condoning Muslim Brotherhood ideology, nor am I condoning the government of Egypt. What I am arguing for is the fundamental journalist's not just right but responsibility to speak to all of the parties to any dispute, to make sure that we have a rational conversations in these kinds of societies where we understand everything about the ideologies involved. That's a fundamental right and a responsibility for journalists all over the world. I'm not suggesting that other places are all heading down the same path as Egypt. They're not. 
But what happened to us is an egregious example of the kinds of trends we are seeing all over the world. And we heard it earlier in the introduction. Where governments have started using national security as an opportunity to go after journalists. And if you think about what national security is, you start to understand, and, and terrorism, the war on terror, you start to understand that these are very malleable terms. You can stretch them to mean pretty much whatever you want it to mean. Now, in Egypt's case, the government has come to define terrorism as anything that threatens the integrity of the state. And so, under Egyptian law, if you hold an unauthorized demonstration, a protest, and in the process you stop, you disrupt public transport, then you can be guilty of terrorism. If you translate the state as being as embodied as, as the embodiment of the as, as being embodied in the, the president, anything that criticizes or attacks the president or undermines public confidence in the president all of a sudden becomes a threat to the integrity of the state and therefore an act of terror. Anything that threatens the political integrity of the party in power can be seen as an act of terror. Now again, I'm not arguing that this is something we're seeing all over the world. But what we are seeing is the way that national security legislation is being weaponized. It's no secret that Turkey, the world's greatest jailer of journalists, has almost all of the journalists on terrorism charges. Journalists that have spoken to the Gulenist movement, which has been accused of, of, of fermenting the attempted coup a few years ago. All of those journalists are have been imprisoned on terrorism charges. Of course, it's not just authoritarian states. Take that bastion of freedom of speech that I mentioned earlier, the United States. Now, I have a great deal of respect for President Obama, but the US has the Espionage Bill, which is pretty much designed to do what it says on the tin. It was created in 1917, during the First World War, to give the government the powers to stop spies foreign agents from undermining the war effort, from selling secrets to the Nazis. From 1917 until 2008, the Espionage Act was used a total of five or six times. It depends on a couple of cases, how you interpret those. But from 2008 until 2016, under the Obama years, the Espionage Act was used more than twice as often as all of his predecessors combined. In almost every case, it was to go after either journalists or their sources. Now, again, that would be understandable if these cases involved breaches of national security. And by that, I mean that secrets were being, CIA tactics were being delivered to Islamic State or the Russians were somehow getting Pentagon battle plans. But that wasn't what was happening. In almost every case, these were stories that were politically embarrassing, but clearly in the public interest. And this is, I think, the trend that is troubling me enormously. It's that trend that is driving the, the overall decline around the world in press freedom. It's the trend that is empowering governments around the world to lock up journalists with impunity. It's that trend which is encouraging extremists to deny what journalists say, to disrupt journalists from doing their jobs, 
As we saw in the United States, an extremist walked into a newspaper um, in 2016 and opened fire and murdered, murdered five of its, of its journalists simply because he objected to what the paper was publishing. A few years ago, there was an organisation that started talking about the grey zone. By the grey zone, this organisation meant the space that is critical for a democracy to function. It's that space that allows us to live in a pluralist society with different views, people of different races, different religious beliefs, different political philosophies. That space that allows us to have conversations and debates without winding, without um, ending up in, in civil conflict and open violence. It's that space that allows journalists to operate, to interrogate and question and, and publish views from across the political spectrum, however uncomfortable they might seem. And which organisation was it, do you think, that was speaking about the grey zone? Some pro-democracy think tank, Freedom House perhaps? Academic group? Uh-uh. It was Islamic State. In 2013, Islamic State published a front page, a cover story in its online magazine called The Beak. And Islamic State um, called for the extinction of the grey zone. Because in the extremist ideology, they don't want the capacity for pluralist societies. What they want is a black and white environment that is impossible for Muslims to live alongside Christians. It's impossible to have the kind of nuanced conversations that the grey zone requires and that democracy requires. What Islamic State is trying to do is to force us into a binary position. And in their story, curiously enough, they quoted one man very prominently, and that was George W. Bush. In this war on terror, you are either with us or you are with the terrorists. And it seems to me that in trying to protect the states, our democratic states, the Western, liberal, open democratic states that have become the, the freest, most prosperous, most stable and most peaceable places on the planet, what we are often doing is undercutting the very foundation of that system, the media's ability to hold government to account. Now, I am not suggesting that we have nothing to be concerned about with national security. Clearly, this is a problem. Clearly, we need to find a way of striking a balance between those two fundamental imperatives, press freedom on the one hand and national security on the other. But we must be absolutely scrupulous in making sure that we do not destroy that press freedom, which is so, so essential to maintaining the systems, maintaining the health of the system. Now, I fully understand that the press has a lot of responsibility in this. I fully understand and appreciate that the press has been criticised for allowing its standards to slip. And there are a whole host of other structural problems that are part of this. But I really want to emphasise the fundamental importance of maintaining the capacity for the of the press to hold governments to account, not just so that we can we journalists have the right to 
stick our noses into the guts of government, into other people's business, but to maintain the transparency and the accountability which is so crucial to democracy. Thanks very much. That was excellent. I certainly have uh, several questions, but I'm going to leave it to the audience first to, to ask their questions. So I suggest you just stay here. So just raise your hand and please give your name and affiliation. I'm uh, Rune Ottosen from Norwegian Penn. Um, I think, thank you for an excellent talk. Uh, I think the key issue here is what you mentioned about the hit on Al Jazeera office in Kabul. Was it an accident or was it deliberate? As far as I know, Nick Gowing from BBC did some investigation. But if you look at the pattern, uh, the bureau in uh, Iraq... Also hit, yes, in Baghdad. And if you go back 1999, the, the television tower in Belgrade was hit and killed several journalists at work there. And Norway was, was involved in the bombing of Libya. Libya state television was hit, two journalists murdered. Why are, if you see the pattern, perhaps you can uh, yeah, I, see I, some worrying pattern here. Yeah, and no, I, I think that's quite, that's quite clear. I mean, the, the it's, it's, in Kabul, Al Jazeera, as in Baghdad, Al Jazeera had given the coordinates of its bureau to the Allied forces, to the coalition forces. The Americans knew exactly where it was. I can't rule out that the fact that it's possible maybe that there was a stray bomb. But it's it, any of the journalists that were there at the time, and that's including myself, took it as a very clear message. And as you said, one incident isolated on its own you may be able to excuse, but the, the consistent pattern of attacks certainly suggests that there has been a concerted assault on, on journalists and we've seen journalists being killed in, as, a, as a direct consequence of that. And if I ha may have a follow-up thought, why on earth are not Western journalists protesting loudly about it? You, you Reporters well, Without Borders, they do mention it. But mainstream media, why I, aren't they not angry? I, you know, this is one of the things that I, I think is puzzling, has, has puzzled me as well. I think it, a, a lot has to do with the kind of the pressures that journalists are under at the moment. We tend not to look past the next, the next paycheck. It's very, very difficult in the current environment to really organise and, pro and protest. Um, journalists generally don't seem to collaborate and, and, and protest as, as a unified group and, and I don't fully understand why that is as a culture I think um, we tend to we almost never move in the same direction unless there's a bar in the room um, I think that our case was an extraordinary example of what does happen when journalists pull together um, I was working for Al Jazeera when we were arrested um, but we saw the BBC stand outside of the Al Jazeera bureau. Sorry, not the, out of the um, out of outside broadcasting house. The whole of the BBC newsroom stood with this extraordinary picture of all the journalists there with their mouths taped shut, 
We saw Christiane Amanportz on CNN hold up, tape up her mouth and hold up a sign saying, free AJ staff. The New York Times published a whole page, a blank page, with the bottom, at the bottom uh, free, a, uh, free AJ staff hashtag, um, indicating what happens when you lock up journalists. And, and I honestly believe that although we can't put our finger on any one example, any one thing that finally got the, the Egyptians to release us, I'm absolutely convinced that that, that, com- that uncommon unity of purpose that journalists displayed around the world when it came to our case in particular was absolutely crucial. I wouldn't be here today if, it, if we didn't have that kind of unified response. Why we don't see that more consistently, I, I, I really can't, I really don't say it. I, I, I can't say, I don't know. It, it perplexes me, it puzzles me, it frustrates me. Um, but I think that if we can take the few examples of when journalism has collaborated and has moved as a, as a whole, I think we, can, we might be able to find a way of, of being more effective with, with advocacy. Thank you very much. I'm uh, Sarah Lister. I'm director of UNDP's Oslo Governance Centre. Um, so uh, I wanted to come back to this idea of the grey zone, um, actually, because um, UNDP works on media development issues in some, you know, across globally we have 170 uh, countries in the world that we work in, not all on media issues. Um, and we work with governments on a range of governance and accountability and peace-building type of issues. Um, but what I see is that in, we work in many of the difficult places, and, and we are in so many places stuck in this binary model ourselves. So the very important media organizations, freedom organizations, democracy organizations, civil society and so forth, are all coming at it from a, you know, we, we are right and you are wrong. And that is perceived as the Western liberal imposition of a model of, of, of being that isn't necessarily considered appropriate. So there is this enormous polarization on both sides, even as we seek to depend, defend what we think is right. So how do we advance that discussion in these difficult countries on the benefits of the grey zone? I, uh, if I, If I can just say, because there are in you know, mechanisms such as national action plans for violent extremism prevention and so forth that attempt to bring those together. But if you're actually working with the government on media regulation issues, how do you, how do you push that discussion in a, in a direction that is, is progressive? I, I don't think I think it's I think it's a mistake to say that this is a Western liberal conceit. Um, I think that the evidence seems pretty clear that that healthy debate in whichever society creates better better outcomes. Um, I don't know of too many places in the world where the more closed a government is, the more effective it is. Um, where you have a closed government, it's, we, end, we tend to end up with more corruption, with, in, um, with um, decisions that serve particular, particular special interests that are made for, for the sake of those interests rather than for the, for the broader good. You end up with less efficient government. Um, and, and I think, you know, and, and that's not particularly um, tied to any one, any one culture, East, West or any other. Um, I think we need to be need to emphasise that that those countries that have been 
more prosperous, more successful, have been the ones that have been prepared to open themselves up to this kind of this kind of debate. It's uncomfortable, you know. It's meant to be uncomfortable. Um, I was talking to a senior politician um, in Australia, um, who, for his own sake, I probably I, I won't mention, I won't name, but he said that he was very supportive of of these ideas. Um, he encouraged me and my current um, and my organisation in our advocacy, um, calling for a Media Freedom Act in Australia, because he acknowledged that even that that even though his his colleagues um, are very really dislike the kind of transparency that we're we're calling for, he said the evidence is that it it makes for better outcomes. It keeps everyone on their toes. We make decisions that are better, um, and and I think that that's something we need to consistently remind people that this isn't a Western conceit. It's simply about making a system that that works better. And the empirical evidence is that the more we have, the more openness and transparency that you have, the more debate that you have within whichever society it is, the better the outcomes. The more efficient the government is, the better the decision-making process. Thank you so much for your very interesting uh, introduction. It strikes me that if if Bush attacked the foreign affairs work of journalists, no, Trump is finishing up with the internal work of, of journalists. But I have to I have to ask you, since uh, since you're an Australian and speaking about the, the Espionage Act, and after this meeting, Rune and I we are moving to the British Embassy with a letter that I've got in my purse on behalf of Norwegian Pen, but also on all the other um, media organizations in Norway, the Press Association, Journalists Association, and the Editors Association, protesting against the extradition of Assange. So I have to ask you, <laughs> what um, are your comments on this? And you're free to join us to deliver the letter if you want to. <laughs> um, I'm going to say something that I think is going to be very controversial. I'm not sure that you're going to like it. Um, I have a real problem with Julian Assange. Um, I applaud, let me begin by saying, I applaud so much of what WikiLeaks exposed. Um, there are an extraordinary number of, of cases, of stories that WikiLeaks revealed that we need to know and that were genuinely in the public interest. But I believe that journalism comes with responsibilities. Um, and I believe that if you're going to use defences around press freedom, then you need to exercise not just the, the rights as a journalist, but also those responsibilities. I've wrestled with this a lot. Um, I know Julian Assange's lawyer, Jen Robinson. She's a good friend of mine. And she and I have discussed this. I know that Julian Assange, through Jen, has consistently asked me to support him publicly. But I find that I, I can't because I don't believe that WikiLeaks behaved with the necessary responsibility. By, by, by publishing largely unredacted documents, Julian Assange exposed and WikiLeaks exposed a lot of people um, across, a lot of people in, that were in um, Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere in ways that I don't think were responsible. Journalism doesn't simply require that you publish. It requires that you, that you go through documents that you protect the identities of the innocent, that you choose the documents that clearly 
the clearly exposed things that are genuinely in the public interest and that you place those documents in context, that you analyse and place them in context. I don't think WikiLeaks did that. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't, there aren't grounds for defending or arguing for Julian's release. I think it's going to be very difficult for him to get a, f a free trial. I think there are arguments under the First Amendment for freedom of speech. But I don't see them as, a, as press freedom arguments. I, I think it's worth looking at the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which also received a massive data dump from the pa from um, Fonseca, um, uh, like Fonseca, the, the uh, Panamanian law firm. And what they did was spent a year going through those documents. They put together a vast consortium of journalists and they went through those documents very, very carefully and they picked out only those documents that exposed examples of corruption and abuse by, pol by political figures and senior bus and, and, and businesses and left everything else aside because they understood, they recognised the risks that innocent people would have had by publishing a lot of those documents. And I think that is the way that that is a, a fine example of, what, of, the, of, of the way that this kind of journalism ought to be done. As I said, I am sympathetic to Julian. I really am. And I think that there are arguments to be had um, about why he should be released. But I don't think that he fits the definition of what I'd consider to be a journalist. I agree on that. And I also think that journalism as editing content and publishing it straight away. But do you support or uh, uh, the extradition of Assange? No, I, I, I don't support the extradition because I think that under the current political environment, it's it's going to be very very difficult for Julian to 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 get a, a free trial. I think this is the core issue here because what he actually is charged after the Espionage Act is what he published in 2010, which was a part of a cooperation with other press media, including Norwegian Aftenbos, and they broke with him after uh, what you explained. But the the core issue here is. It's not that he's uh, under uh, charge for, it's the, the responsible publishing. And that has the chilling effect. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, this, and this, this, this does have a lot of, there are a lot of chilling effects as a consequence of this. And I am concerned about the way the Espionage Act was used. And I also note that the Obama administration considered using the Espionage Act in, in, in WikiLeaks' case and, and decided not to because they felt that that was a step too far. And so I am very concerned about the way that that um, the current administration is using the Espionage Act because I think that's, that's inappropriate and I think that'll have a lot of very negative consequences for press freedom. Uh, hello, this is uh, Tove Gradal, journalist at Morgenbladet. Uh, thank you so much for a very, very interesting talk and uh, very interesting points on what you said about Julian Assange as well. Just a comment on that because we, we have discussed this in, in my newspaper on several occasions and, and it's very proper this week to remind if I had known on the 5th of June 1944 about the plan for boarding uh, Normandy, what would we have done? <laughs> so, I mean, this is uh, to put it a little bit in, in context and, uh, and those are moral questions that we, or ethical questions that we have to grapple with all the time and think, think about. Uh, but um, if from that to, um, to another question, in our liberal democracies where we are faced with uh, 
with challenges of press freedom, and now in particular a president of the largest country defending press freedom, who is, keeps attacking uh, the independence of the media. And so there are two questions linked to that. How do we respond to those continuing attacks? I know he, he's very deliberate in, in what he's doing because he, he knows that he's provo provoking our reaction and he's provoking people's reactions. So, and so he doesn't necessarily, necessarily care about what, uh, what the media are saying. He just wants attention. So how do we deal, what kind of strategy would you suggest uh, the media come up with, uh, faced with those continuous attacks? And, uh, and secondly, what, uh, uh, what, that, what we also can see is that journalists are being more biased. I keep watching CNN and watching the, uh, the, the presenters on CNN, and I think, hmm, well, this is not exactly true. This is extremely biased. And so, so we are letting ourselves being polarized and, and being biased. The first part, I think um, it's an incredibly difficult situation. Um, how do you respond to the President of the United States? I, I, I think that there was, I think it was last year, um, we saw all of, the, it was hundreds of newspapers, all publish the same uh, op-eds um, on, on one day, on World Press Freedom Day, decrying the assault on journalism, um, decrying the American, the current administration's um, attacks on, on journalism. And I think that kind of unified response is the best way that we can push back. I don't have a magic bullet for this. I really don't. All I can point to is the example of our case once again, um, where we saw that unified common sense of purpose. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that we need to, to, to try to maintain or try to recreate when it comes to President, uh, President Trump's attacks on the media. And it is, make no mistake, it is incredibly dangerous. Um, on the second part of your question, yes, the journalists do have a responsibility, and I mentioned that in my in my talk that we've got a responsibility to maintain the highest ethical standards. And I, I don't want to try and shift the blame or the responsibility away from journalists themselves, but we also need to address the underlying structural problems that are pushing journalists in that direction. We all know, and it's quite quite plain that the success of Fox News um, and other newspapers shows us that polemic works, that in this current digital environment uh, where we are so dependent in ways throughout the whole of publishing history we have never been, dependent on eyeballs, on individual stories for the success or failure of news organisations. And so if we are simply to say, well, one of the things that we keep doing at the moment, we've all had these debates around business models for journalism, how we need to try and find a business model that works. And I think that is a fundamental problem. That's a mistake. Because if we talk about business models, what we're doing is asking news organisations to somehow twist themselves into a form that suits an infrastructure, a digital environment, that is simply not fit for purpose. That environment is pushing, it prioritizes news that generates clicks. 
And we know that the kinds of stories that generate clicks are stories, a, a, a polemic over analysis, over ru- a rumor over opinion, of soft, gossipy stories over hard news. We all know in the old days when you had editorial meetings, the most important person in the room was the editor who would sit down and you'd have big conversations about what is the most important story of the day editorially. What are the things that our readers need to know about? Whether it's the local government dispute or politics or economics or whatever. Now, the most important person in those rooms is the online guy who will tell you which story generated the most clicks and therefore which journalist got more revenue for the newspaper. And those are the stories that get prioritised. Now, it's very, very difficult if you're an editor who has lost a third of his revenue from um, advertising revenue and had to sack half of his staff to say, oh, no, we're not going to do that story about the Kardashians or the scandalous story about um, you know, the private life of some, of some politician because we'll stick to our higher principles even if it means ultimately I'm going to have to sack a couple more journalists. And so what we need to start doing is stop, stop talking about business models and start talking about the function, the, de- the, the social function that journalism plays, the public utility of journalism. If we start talking about that, we can then start talking about how we figure out how to finance, how to create an economic structure that insulates journalists from the kinds of, those kinds of popular wins. Because that is not producing the kind of journalism that we need in a democracy. And we are simply not going to get it if we expect news organisations to survive and somehow create business models that work in the current environment. We need to change the environment itself. Um, I've got some ideas about that and I'm doing some research to try and figure out how we can do that fundamentally. Um, That's a conversation for another time, I think. But what I'd urge people to do is to understand and urge journalists to do is to understand and emphasize the way in which the digital environment distorts our craft and creates the kind of problem that you're talking about, the kind of inherent bias which generates niche markets which work for those, those advertisers but don't deliver an outcome that's good for democracy. Um, there was something else I was going to mention on that. I'm sorry, it's just slipped out of my mind. But I think that's... I think that's, that's that's really key. Oh, that's right. No, I was going to say, I think in Norway, um, you guys and, and, and Sweden have a fantastic model. The, the production subsidy um, is, I think, an incredibly important and useful and, and, and powerful way of, of supporting journalism. And I think this is something that others like those of us in Australia ought to be considering. Um, and I think that if there was a way of creating the kind of financial support, a financial buffer that that insulates, at least to a certain extent, journalism from the kind of um, the kind of, of, of influences of the digital environment. Then I think um, we'd all be a whole lot better off. Yes, Lorsi, well, uh, I'm I have um, uh, been affiliated with the University of Oslo for a great many years, and uh, my interest is uh, actually freedom of the press in many ways. And uh, I worked as a contractor in Afghanistan. And um, I wonder, do journalists reflect on the um, s- the dis- 
the situation on the ground where they work because you know Norway is a liberal democracy but during the German occupation from 40 to 45 we didn't have a free press uh, whatever free press we had was the illegal press and the rest was the occupying powers and uh, if you go into this problem you have been talking about about the lack of a grey zone where worrying parties who don't want a grey zone and when I worked in Afghanistan you know, white psyops was a part of our mode of operations. We'd be distributed news bulletins to the general population because winning the hearts and minds was a part of the game. And of course, when you go into that environment as a reporter, as a war reporter, and you, you, your whatever you write might be taken as a as a stand in in this conflict by any of the warring parties. That's a great risk, and. Um, I think it's hard to get away from it. I, I strongly believe in the freedom of the press, but the risk of being a war reporter, I think you can't take it away. And war is not only defined by the kinetics and, and if it's if you've shot it or, or it's explosions, but it's war in societies where, where the political situation is, is very uh, contentious, what is, uh, you know, like it was in Egypt, and then you are really in a state of war. And, and I, I, I sympathize greatly with reporters who do the job, but I think you can't really get away with that risk because the powers that be, they want to, to rule the field. Uh, and and uh, it has been mentioned here that <laughs> what is interesting, we see that journalists who the general public, I think, used to look to as sources for, for comment who were sort of objective, you know? Not objective in the Paul Keating way, but objective anyway. Like you, you could rely on as, as a as an opinion that you could respect. They're also becoming warring parties, like in the U.S., for instance, where you have partisan uh, journalism almost all over the all over the all over the board, and that I think that's disconcerting. That you can't pick up any <laughs> maybe the from the Financial Times or, or some big man, you can have some kind of trust in what's, but they're really just players in, on the political field. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a second that this is easy. You know, I, I, I really don't. Or, or that it's, you know, there's, there is a way around this which, which won't get people killed. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been on the sharp end of this several times, you know, not just in prison in Egypt, but I've had my producer shot and killed in Mogadishu while we were working together. Um, so I know, I know what the costs involved are, and I know that that governments and, and those with power, those with guns, not just dislike but despise what journalists do, and they see it directly as as a threat to who they are, and therefore they've got no, they, they have no hesitation in pulling the trigger. Um, and this is why I think that we really need to encourage, not to throw up our hands in despair, but to actively argue and, and fight for this at every, every opportunity. This is not going to be a slow, you know, a radical shift of, of, of culture. Um, we can't, I can't point to any one action that we can take and end up with an outcome. I don't have any magic bullet to this. What I am trying to do in constantly speaking like this is, is to try and, and, and shift, shift the culture. And I actually think we are starting to see it. Um, people understand 
the issues around fake news. People understand the need for credible new and authoritative news sources. And we're seeing, you know, the main legacy news organisations like The Guardian and The New York Times are seeing their subscriptions rise to the point where they're, they say they're able to make a profit. Now, I don't think that we've got a model that actually um, allows journalism to flourish through that system. I don't think the, the, the kind of subscription models that those, those newspapers that are succeeding is actually scalable to the point where we can create an entire world um, media system based on that. But my point is that people are moving back to those news services because they recognise the need to go to news sources that they can trust. So it seems to me that there is a general understanding of, of that the system is not working and that, they, that, that Facebook and Twitter aren't necessarily the best places for your sources of information. You need to go to, to legacy news organisations or to organisations that have a strong track record. Um, if we don't keep supporting those, if we don't keep pushing back, if we don't keep making this argument, then we're simply never going to win it. Um, and I, and you, I mean, you yourself pointed out that, you know, in this country, um, 60, 70 years ago, uh, we had anything but a free press, and now you're sitting right at the very top of, of the press freedom scale. So it is possible. Sometimes it's very difficult to see the movements on a day-to-day -day basis, but I genuinely believe that these that you can shift culture as long as you keep talking about it and advocating for it. My name is uh, Kjell Stamnes. I'm here as an independent, but uh, interesting in the subject. Uh, you are describing a trend which uh, is quite worrisome. In addition, we also see, at least in the liberal democracies, a shrinking confidence in the media in itself. Can you elaborate a little bit more about uh, what the media itself can do to, to turn around this trend, to improve the situation? Um, let me premise this. I'm not saying the media can't do anything. And as I said earlier, what we have to do is, is put a lot more effort into raising our professional ethical standards. That's incredibly difficult in the current economic environment that I was describing earlier. But I also think that what we keep doing is asking, is looking to the media to solve a problem that it did not make. And by that I mean, I'm not saying that, that, that news organisations have, have, have never done anything to, to lose public trust, but what I am suggesting is that so much of the erosion of public trust is a consequence of the, the digital platforms. The way in which the platforms have allowed fake news to gain a foothold, the way in which it's now possible for anybody to have any, any views, any radical crazy views confirmed online, the, re the, the way in which the anti-vax movement has, been, has taken off despite all of the scientific evidence to the contrary. If you are an anti-vaxxer, you can find a whole world of conspiracy theories online to support your views. And as a consequence, we're seeing a lot of people dying of measles and, and, and other um, um, immune, immunizable diseases. And I think that's, that's, the pro that's, that's a really important part of the problem, that yes, journalism and news organizations have allowed their professional standards to slip, particularly in their struggle to, to try and stay afloat in the current environment. 
But we're now operating in a system which has completely, which has allowed people to believe whatever they want to believe, that has allowed the, the flow of, of, of misinformation um, through the environment, which has generally eroded trust in, in everything. Um, all of the trust indices around the world are showing that trust is at an all-time low in whatever institution you're talking about, not just the media. Um, and of course, I, you know, I can't talk about this without referring once again to, a, to Donald Trump um, and his constant assaults on fake news, on the fake, you know, the failing New York Times um, and the Clinton News Network in the way that he does. Um, I think the way in which politicians have constantly attacked the integrity of the media has given their supporters and their opponents all of the excuses they need to dismiss any uncomfortable stories that might, they might happen to see published. And so it's not just the responsibility of news organisations. It is a structural problem, and no one has, I think, designed it in this way. It's just that this has evolved in a way which is deeply destructive to our democracies. And there are other political leaders that are exploiting that, those structural weaknesses and exploiting the scepticism which the public now has to further undermine it for political gain, and I think that's also deeply problematic. So journalists are part of the, have, have responsibility, they're part of the problem, but they're by no means the only part of the problem, and we're never going to be able to solve it if, it's, if we just focus on, on journalism themself, itself. <laughs> okay, so I want to go uh, back in your talk uh, and your kind of thesis on this shift to the war on ideas. <clears throat> and first, just a remark. Um, it reminded me of uh, one of the first things which Putin said, even when he was a prime minister, and he kind of was gearing up for the Second Chechen War, which was called an anti-terrorist campaign. He said, to, speaking about the media, that the enemy cannot be given a face. And it was a very conscious, and this is actually where the kind of unraveling of whatever there was of uh, free media in Russia started. It was a conscious policy which he followed consequently. The, the enemy must not be given a, a face. <clears throat> so I was wondering whether you are phrasing of, is it a shift to the war of ideas? Or is it more <laughs> a kind of authoritarian tendency which certain politicians pick up on, including George Bush. Uh, so it's the lack of space, it's the, it's the need uh, not to give space to alternative uh, poles of authority. Because after all, that's what the free media is, right? It's, it's, it's an alternative pole of, of authority. So I was just wondering, why did you choose that, that think, phrase? I think because... Um, because what we're seeing is the criminalization of certain ideas. Um, I, I, I think the two go hand in hand, and I think you're right that, that authoritarians like to use that, um, like to assault the media. But I don't think it's, it's unique to authoritarianism. Um, I think in a lot of cases it comes from often genuine attempts to, to shore up national security, but in ways that I think are often... Um, often rushed. Uh, I'm going to refer to Australia here. We have 
foreign fighter legislation which prohibits, um, which makes it a crime to advocate terrorist ideology. Now, that's exactly what we were convicted of in, in Egypt, advocating terrorist or promoting terrorist ideology. But what we were doing in Afghanistan in crossing the, crossing the front lines to speak to the Taliban could be construed as, as advocating terrorist ideology. What we were trying to do is to understand what drove the Taliban. If Under the current legislation, if, we, if you go and tr- speak to extremists to try to understand what it is that motivates them, not in an attempt to support or promote it, but in an attempt to understand the underlying ideology, what is it that we need to do? We, because it strikes me that that you're never going to solve this conflict if you simply try to deal with it with weapons and intelligence. You, you deal with it by tackling the, 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 the ideology and the theology that drives it. And if we don't understand it, we can never, we can never tackle it. And I, I, think that's, I think that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. It's where you can't interrogate the extremes. Um, I was... In, in Australia... I was to give an interview, I was to host, there have been two examples where I was invited um, to chair a discussion as the interviewer for, for discussions, public discussions, with two individuals on separate occasions. One was with Manwar Ali, who is a former jihadi, a British jihadi, an extraordinary man who has turned full 360 degrees and who is now um, one of the most passionate advocates for uh, a pacifist approach to and, and trying to kind of uh, trying to get a, a kind of reconciliation between Islam and, and the West and he, he has some not only some wonderful ideas but nobody I've ever spoken to understands the ideology in the way that he does and they can unpack it and, and, and interrogate it now he was refused a visa into Australia he couldn't get a visa for reasons that were never explained, it was simply delayed. But the only only conclusion that we could come to was that he somehow was seen as as a threat because he happened because he acknowledged and admitted that he was involved in terrorist activities in the past. By the way, he's worked very closely with um, the British Home Office, with the British Police on on um, anti-radicalisation programs. So he's someone who I think we needed to have in Australia to discuss the issue. Another person who I was due to meet was Chelsea Manning. At the Opera House, this is the Opera House. I was due to interview her, and again she failed the character test. Apparently, um, again, it was not to advocate for what she was doing, but to try to understand the thinking behind the WikiLeaks, to try to understand what it was that drove her to to, to do that, to, and not just to give her a platform, but also do my job as a journalist. And that's to question and challenge, to interrogate those ideas. Now, if, we, if, if we're using laws that are designed to, to protect, supposedly protect us in, in the name of, of national security in ways that are actually shutting us off from being exposed to ideas that are actually very helpful to our democracy, then something is wrong. And that's what I mean by the way, in which, the, the way in which I think this war of ideas is, is corrupting our democracy. 
because I was uh, just reflecting, and I think it's um, maybe important to take the chance to shed a bit of light on the Norwegian media sphere, which is very good, but it's not perfect. Uh, and one question um, which I was interested in was uh, the espionage, espionage cases under Obama, right? Uh, so I agree, there's this uh, concrete direct problem with using national security, but in my field, I do security politics, basically. I think there is a very indirect uh, problem in the media in, and in the public debate <coughs> where uh, those who do security, so the armed forces or the security services, uh, once there is a discussion about security issues, they are called upon as the authoritative figures who know something about this question. And they're given a platform in many Norwegian media totally uncritically. Uh, and that's, of course, because they are experts in their field. But I think, um, <clears throat> uh, for me, that seems, in the Norwegian context at least, that seems like a greater threat than actually uh, you know, using explicit uh, espionage laws and things like that to take down uh, good critical journalism uh, on security issues. It's more, um, yeah, give, giving some voices a platform without being very explicit on the fact that, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. And these people sit in a department where they're looking for threats and they have sometimes an interest in, um, you know, inflating uh, the image of, of the threat. So... In Norway, I would say that's the biggest problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> not much to say to that. I, you know, I, I, mean, I, I think I agree. I think that there is a there is a, a problem. Um, I'm not suggesting, and please, I, I don't want anybody to come away from this thinking that I'm, I believe that the media is perfect and 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 you know, if we just allow media complete and unfettered access to everything, everything would be fine. It, it, it's not. This is not what I'm arguing. It's a deeply flawed human construct. Business News is not a science. Journalism is not a science. It's a, it's a human construct. And as in every form of, of human construct, it, it's flawed, it's, it's often sloppy, it's subject to our own human frailties. But if we go back to what the empirical evidence shows us, if you have, if you encourage and support a free press, then you have a better dem democratic system. You know, the kinds of cases that you you speak about are, are problems, and, and you know these these aren't things that we should we should we should simply ignore. What I am arguing for is that is that we not lose sight of that fundamental imperative to to maintain and support a free press and consistently work to try and and address the kinds of problems that 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 it, that causes difficulties without losing sight of that input, the, the, basic, the basic role of a free press. I think for many people who work, for instance, in the security services or, or in the army, uh, it's hard you know, to see it only as a freedom of press case because uh, if a person who has, should have or had a lo loyalty to, to his, his or her work in the army or, or in the security services, uh, you know, uh, betrays that loyalty. That is sort of the for many people the the no no. That's that's the red line. That's the red line. And we 
if you know just the routines around how this works in this country, which is quite liberal. If if somebody in the army works up on the border, uh, uh, an officer up on the border with the Soviet Union in the northern Norway, if he should suddenly decide to get a Russian spouse, you know, it's nothing wrong with it. Not nothing, it, nothing damning on his character. It's just automatically seen as a security risk, and he would yep. be removed to some other kind of work. You know, so so it's it's these these risk reflections that are inherent in the work in the in the dynamics of it and that's i'm not saying that it's perfect but it's a, a, a precaution it's precautions and i think anybody who worked with someone had that did what chelsea manning did in any kind of armed forces would shy away from her and would not not be happy no, with I, that action. again i'm not I, I, but please understand i wasn't giving i wasn't saying that um, that we should we should be encouraging everybody to everyone who works in the security services to work the way that Chelsea Manning did. Um, what I'm arguing for is that we didn't allow her an opportunity to come to Australia where we could where we could interrogate what she had done. Um, and Chelsea Manning has a very radical view over over transparent of, of things like transparency, and I wanted to push her on that. Um, the fact is that her her views or her what she did has been, I think, has been in a lot of ways misunderstood or mischaracterized. And what we what we needed to do was to allow her an opportunity to explain her her thoughts, explain her position, but also subject her to cross examination of the kind of things that you're talking about. And that's the what that's what good journalism should be doing, right? Nobody you heard, but there has been a rather vivid debate here in Norway over the last few weeks uh, because of Steve Bannon's presence in Bergen uh, a few few weeks ago, where where uh, most uh, editorials in the paper said, "Yeah, he should come," and then there were particularly from the civil society people who said, "Why should he be given a platform? He's a conspiratory person," and and giving him a platform for spreading those conspiracies is uh, is dangerous, and and is something really very much larger than Steve Bannon in this. We had uh, right wing extremists killing seventy seven people in two thousand and eleven, and I remember we wrote about uh, after that terrorist attacks in twenty eleven uh, that uh, now these ideas uh, have to be fought, and we have this horrible experience here in Norway, fighting these right-wing, fascist, uh, anti-Muslim ideas. And what we're seeing is that they're spreading now more than ever. And uh, they are spreading rather openly. So, and there have been sources like Björn Static, uh, you know him, who said in in an op-ed in the newspaper, said that I've been promoting uh, open speech and, and talking about these ideas openly in order to fight them. But now I'm hesitant. I'm not so sure any longer because that has given fertile ground for spreading them. What do you, what do you think about this? Um, I, I'm afraid on this one I come down on the side of your editorial writers. Um, we don't need the press for Steve Bannon's ideas to circulate now. You know, Facebook and Twitter does a very good job of that as it is. Um, Steve Bannon doesn't need the press to, to, for, for his platforms. 
um, other in various corners, un, unregulated corners, he, his work goes unchallenged. Um, I still think, on balance, there is no easy. Well, let me say there is no easy answer, and I also feel quite conflicted about it. But I think, on balance, um, given the choice between publishing or, or giving him, um, a, placing him in, in, in a position where not only he has a chance to explain his views, but also to be properly interrogated. Um, I think is is the way to go. Um, I, I think, in conclusion, there's a, a great line which Albert Camus, the great French philosopher, used, um, came up with a few uh, many years ago. That I think applies both in this case, but also more broadly to the subject we've been talking about. And he said that a free press can, of course, be both good and bad, but a press that is not free can never be anything but bad. Thank you so much for coming. That was absolutely excellent. I think we will give you another hand. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.